The Old Testament reading comes from Jeremiah 14, verses 14 through 16. And the Lord said to me, the prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I did not send them, nor did I command them or speak to them. They are prophesying to you a lying vision, worthless divination, and the deceit of their own minds. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who prophesy in my name, although I did not send them, and who say, Sword and famine shall not come upon this land. By sword and famine those prophets shall be consumed, and the people to whom they prophesy shall be cast out in the streets of Jerusalem, victims of famine and sword, with none to bury them, them, their wives, their sons, and their daughters, for I will pour out their evil upon them. Well, good morning. We are wrapping up the, the book of Romans. Our sermon this morning is from Romans 16, 17 through 27. And we'll begin in verse 17. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Father, we thank you now for this, your word, instruct us in it. And through the unction and anointing and power of your spirit, O God, illuminate our hearts that we might understand it and be transformed by it. In Christ's name, amen. Well, you know, it's been said that the most important part of a book is the beginning. If you've ever sort of jumped into a book, you know, after the first chapter, you find yourself lost. So the first the beginning of a book is the most important, but if the beginning of a book is the most important part, then it's true that the second most important part of a book is its ending or its conclusion. And that's where we find ourselves here this morning is the very ending of Paul's letter, the book of Romans. It's really a letter to the Christians that were in the city of Rome. Now, the book of Romans has been mostly about the 
the church in Rome's unity in diversity. What kind of diversity? Well, they were Jew and Gentile Christians with vastly different sensibilities about culture, about God, about what it meant to be holy and accepted and righteous in the sight of God. But the gospel unites them doctrinally and theologically. And so the theological truths and the doctrinal truths expressed in its pages are the grounds for unity and oneness. You know, some people say doctrine divides. I think doctrine unites people. I think that one of the reasons we're here together is we're united in faith and we're united in what we believe. You know, you've seen those bumper stickers, you know, deeds, not creeds, which ironically is a creed, right? So, I mean, everybody believes something and we're either united by those things or divided by those things, but I think clear doctrine, clearly exposited and communicated is a grounds for incredible unity among the people of God. But the unity and the oneness that Christians experience in the church is fragile. It is not rock solid. It's not like granite. The unity we have is delicate. It's fragile. And it doesn't take much to upset that unity. If, if you have been a Christian for a while and you've been in churches, you've seen that. You've seen the unity of a church disintegrate because, at times probably, because of someone causing trouble or someone causing division or an issue with the leadership. It doesn't take much for division to happen. Unity is not our natural habitat. Division and strife and tribalism are. And that's just a sad reality of a fallen world with fallen people. We just kind of naturally divide with one another. So we have to work hard to be united to one another. Unity is not our natural habitat. Division, strife, and tribalism are. When a minister in our denomination is ordained, he takes a vow to uphold the peace and purity of the church. This is something, especially in our circles, you hear a lot. The peace, defending and protecting the peace and purity of the church, which sounds really easy, but it's kind of a tightrope walk. Because if you're only concerned with doctrinal purity, you'll divide with people over every little thing. And if you're only concerned with keeping the peace, you'll let all sorts of heresies go unchecked. You see the difficulty in it? Peace and purity, right? Doctrinal purity and church unity or church peace. I've mentioned before I once asked a seminary professor, you know, thinking I was clever, which is more important, doctrinal purity or church unity? And he said, yes. Because they're both very important, and you have to hold those things together in a certain kind of tension. It takes a great deal of wisdom to strike the right balance, is what I'm trying to say. And Paul has spilled much of his ink writing the book of Romans on church unity, but in these final verses he moves from the concept and idea of unity to the menace of those threatening divisions. For all of Paul's patience and love and tolerance and forgiveness and compassion, he has no tolerance for people who would cause division because he recognizes how fragile it is to keep people together from different backgrounds and sensibilities and cultures and ethnicities. 
surrounded around this good doctrine that he's been working on for all these 16 chapters. So if anybody sort of maliciously or malevolently would come in to attack that unity, he's got no patience for them. He has very little tolerance for people who would cause division. And so he begins this section with a warning. He begins this section with a warning, and he starts off and he says, I urge you, brothers... And this urge is a threefold appeal, okay? It is an appeal for vigilance, right? One, my thumb represents the first one. Vigilance for separation and for discernment. So in the warning, the warning is threefold, and it is an appeal for vigilance, for separation, and for discernment. So the first is this plea for vigilance. He says, be on your guard against those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way to the doctrine that you have been taught. Be on your guard. Be aware of people who would hinder your progress in the teaching. This is how serious and important in Paul's mind the doctrine is. Be on your guard. Be wary against those who would hinder your progress in, you know, learning your doctrine, learning your theology. Maybe, maybe we sometimes overemphasize theology, but theology matters. Doctrine matters because if you believe crazy things about God, you end up doing crazy things, right? If you believe the right things about God, well, you do right things. Not always, but as a general rule. So we ought to be able to recognize when someone is sowing doctrinal confusion in the church. I once attended a church in California where I differed from the church's official teaching on the millennium. Now, for those of you unfamiliar, in Revelation 20, there is a portion of scripture that talks about the millennial reign of Christ. And there's a lot of different ways to interpret it. All right? So for those of you who think that your view is the only really view out there, some people maybe not in this church, but there are people who think that the right interpretation of Revelation 20 is just an axiom, right? Like, how could anyone not see it this way? Well, I differed with the church, even though I was really connected to the leadership, and it was a good church. It was a good Bible-preaching church, and they were faithful. Uh, but when they found out that I differed, they wanted to meet with me. And I met on one occasion with two elders and another occasion with two pastors, and they wanted to know where I was at. And they were actually okay with my position. They were okay with the fact that I differed from the church's official position. They realized it was a peripheral issue. It wasn't sort of a primary issue. But what they asked me is that I would not go around evangelizing people to convert them to my view. And I said, totally respect that. No problem. I was not going to be the sower of division. Essentially, you know, the person, even though I felt very strongly... I felt stronger back then about my millennial view than I do now. Now, with the millennial views, I'm just kind of like, yeah, I have a millennial view, but you know, it's, it's, it's not that big of a deal. We can differ on those issues. At the time, this was 10-something years ago, I was much more dogmatic about it, but I respect it because I recognized the damage it could do. I, at, the, at that church, was just attending as a member. I was not a pastor. I was not an elder there, and I completely respected that. What Paul is talking about here is not peripheral issues but people in the church teaching contrary to sort of the clear teaching of Scripture and doctrine, the big issues, not peripheral issues, but the big issues, 
Now, what are some big issues we would think about? Well, the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, the historicity of the resurrection, things like that, right? The saving power of the gospel and justification by faith, we, as we've seen in Romans. These are like the big things for Paul. And so he is talking about someone who would divide or lead people astray in these really important areas. Things that are in total opposition to the doctrines outlined and contained already in Paul's letter to Romans. So he makes a plea for vigilance, be on your guard, but he also makes a call for separation. And he says, keep away from them. So you may think it's not appropriate to shun people, and most of the time it's not. Right? Even people who are in sin, people who believe the wrong things, but this particular kind of pernicious behavior, Paul says, keep away from these people. That seems kind of harsh, right? Because the previous verse, in verse 16, Paul says, greet one another with a holy kiss. And now he's saying, separate from them. Well, he's talking about two different groups of people. We are to greet one another with a holy kiss. And as a quick aside, uh, Paul has no particular, you know, doctrinal emphasis on kissing each other, whatever the conventional norm of the day for showing each other warmth. So today it might be a handshake or a hug, right? In those days, it would be like a kiss on the cheek. Like people in the Middle East do, they kiss each other. Even men do on, you know, one on each cheek. So just as an aside, don't think we're, do, we're not obeying scripture because we're not kissing each other, okay? The emphasis is be warm with one another and greet one another in a spirit of openness and love. But here... He says, separate, keep away from these people who cause doctrinal division and strife. In other words, don't don't kiss the false teacher. (laughs) Don't embrace false teachers. Now, what is a false teacher? Is it someone who is a little confused? I mean, we all can be a little confused over doctrine and theology at times, right? I had someone recently asked me to clarify my position on sanctification, and I have to admit, I hadn't studied it for a long time, and so it was just kind of a from-the-hip answer, and this person sort of challenged me with uh, some more, you know, details, and I realized, I think I need to, like, freshen up on the doctrine of sanctification, because I was a little fuzzy on it. So Paul's not talking about that. He's not talking about being a little fuzzy on theology, you know, unless you're a scholar, we can all be a little fuzzy sometimes on, you know, on, on you know, minor, you know, not minor, but theological minutia, right? But that's not what Paul is talking about. He's talking about false teachers who know exactly what they're doing, right? He's talking about people who have a sort of nefarious intent in their heart. And look at what he says, avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. This is not someone who's just a little confused about their theology. This is someone who is malicious. And so there are four things I want to note about people who sow division in the church, the kind of people that Paul is talking about. I've got a little list here. I've been told that when I make these lists or these application points, that it would be helpful to put it up on the screen. So I'm trying to get better at that. So number one, they're egotistical. The people Paul talks about are 
sort of led by their own ego and self-centeredness. They don't care about who they hurt, nor do they care about the fallout from their division. They just want to be seen as important. Their ego drives them more than anything. Number two, they will not submit to authority. If no one gives them a pulpit, they will create a pulpit for themselves. And sometimes it's in the hallway of the church right under the noses of the elders and the pastors and the leaders, right? They'll lead people astray, and they'll do it any chance they get. They'll create a pulpit for themselves. Number three, they don't serve God but themselves. Every person they win to their sordid view is a sort of feather in their cap and a boost to their ego. It's not God, but their own appetites that they serve. In fact, the Greek says their God is their belly. Right? They serve their own appetites. They serve themselves. They're not concerned with the greater good of the church and the people of God. They serve themselves. And they're driven by their own appetite or their own you know, mental lusts or whatever the, whatever the case may be. And number four... They don't care about peace in the church. Their rebellion gives them no peace, and so they are not mindful of keeping the peace in the church and the purity of the church. And you know, people who are in rebellion against authority, they ultimately don't have peace. And so it's natural that they would sow division and destroy the peace of a church because they don't, even, they don't know what it tastes like. They, they themselves live in division with God because they're in rebellion against authority, and so it's, been, it's natural for them to destroy the peace in a church. And maybe you've seen it. These people are usurpers. They will not submit humbly to their elders or the people above them. And you know, I had a question, I had a conversation with a friend the other day who was, uh, who doesn't go to this church, he goes to another church, he was talking about a sin he committed that was grievous, and he was so broken about it that by the time he got into the pastor's office, the two pastors, he told them, I am humble, I am not humble, I am, I am broken over my sin, and I am fully in subjection to your authority over me, and I want, I, I, you know, I just, whatever you think is right for me to do, that's what I want to do. And he told me that the pastors there in the office were like, they were sort of blown away. Do you want to know why those pastors were sort of blown away with that humble surrender of his will to their authority? Because it's pretty rare. Most people just don't see their church leaders as having really any authority over them. But according to Scripture, pastors, and I don't, I'm not saying this to like boost myself, I'm just saying like in general, you know, uh, the, the ordained minister, the pastor, has a kind of spiritual authority over the people he ministers to because he has to give an account for them. And so people who cause division, they don't know what it's like to be like, they don't, they don't know what it's like to be in subjection to the authority of their spiritual leaders. The idea that they would surrender to the wisdom and defer to the wisdom of a pastor or, an el or a group of elders over them. It's just kind of foreign, especially in our culture right now. And maybe I'm going on a little rant here. I don't know. But especially in our culture where we all have so many options, right? If someone talks to us the wrong way, we're gone. We've got 50 churches in a five-square-mile radius. Bye. You know, we're out the door. I'm not talking about us in, in, in here. I'm just saying, like, 
this is just the culture we live in today, this modern culture, even among Christians. And these people who sow division, they cannot submit to authority. They hear something that offends them, they're gone. They would not think of reconciling or submitting themselves to the church leadership. They are in rebellion against God, they have no peace, and so they destroy the peace of the church. I was once at a church where someone came in right as the sermon was starting and said, I have a word from God for this church. And the pastor, very quick-witted, said, so do I, and I'm about to preach it. Now sit down. (laughs) I was grateful for that quick response on his part. But you know, some people are just unteachable and proud, and they're the bane of any church they enter. So Paul calls for vigilance and separation, but he also urges the Roman believers to grow in their discernment. Now on the whole, he's pleased with the behavior of the Roman church, but he does want them to grow in discernment. And so he says in verse 19, everyone has heard about your obedience, so I am full of joy over you. But he's concerned that they have the right kind of obedience. And there's two kinds of obedience. There's blind obedience and there's discerning obedience. So it's possible that a generation ago or many times in the church, leaders may have abused their authority. And so people are now more weary of submitting to the authority. They are hyper vigilant and discerning, right? So maybe there's a pendulum swing where people are less willing because pastors or elders in the past have abused that authority. So people are more reticent, and I get that. But Paul does want us to develop the latter kind of obedience, which is a discerning kind of obedience. In other words, if you came into my office and I said something outrageously crazy, I mean, you should go to the other elders and say, you know, Pastor Jordan, I met with him, and he said this. Can that be right? You know, or hopefully you'd say it to my face, but, you know, um, so... Yes, pastors do not have unlimited authority, but um, Paul wants us to be discerning, right? And he says this in 19b, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. You can recall here possibly Jesus' own words that we ought to be wise as serpents but harmless as doves, right? And the J.B. Phillips Bible Translation states this verse that way, that verse this way. I want you to be experts in good and not even beginners in evil. Right? I want you to be experts in good and and not even beginners in evil. So how can we be discerning, embracing the good and avoiding the evil? Well, there are valuable tests that we can apply to doctrine or ethics, and there are really three tests that are biblical, Christological, and moral, all right? So maybe you want to write that down. Three tests to discern whether doctrine or or ethics or, you know, behavior is right, is good or evil, okay? Number one, I think we have a list here, does it agree with Scripture, That's the biblical test. How do we know if something is good or evil? Well, does it agree with Scripture? And it's up on the screen for you. The second is, does it glorify the Lord Jesus? That's the Christological test. So the first test is a biblical test. Is it biblical? 
Second test is, it does it glorify the Lord, Jesus? That's the Christological test. And the third is, does it promote goodness? That's the moral test, all right? So that's a good, sort of a, a good formula when you are trying to discern if something maybe sounds a little different to you. Again, the context, remember, is people who would sow division and teach contrary to the clearly taught doctrine. Say, is this really biblical? Does it glorify the Lord? And does it promote goodness? That's a sort of uh, a formula for you to test. So that's Paul's warning overall. Be vigilant, avoid false teachers, and be discerning, okay? That is the warning aspect of our text this morning. Now we move on to the greeting. And in verses 21 through 23, Paul starts out by saying, Timothy, my fellow worker greets you, so do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater. So you remember, about a chapter ago, Paul was writing to greet people already in Rome who he had encountered on his travels. Now, as Paul writes this letter, he is giving greetings from the people who are with him, likely in Corinth. These are people that worked with Paul in Corinth. And one of them, you should notice, is extremely well-known, and this is the young pastor Timothy. And often, Timothy would go places that Paul couldn't go. So if Paul was in prison, or he was being detained, or he was, he was ill, he would send Timothy as his representative. And Timothy was Paul's sort of pastoral understudy, if we can put it that way. I cannot imagine, I mean, you know, talk about an internship, right? Timothy, the young pastor, learning under the apostle Paul. And Timothy became converted under Paul's preaching and became a church planter himself. Paul was an incredible church planter. And not only would he plant churches, but after he was there for a couple years, he'd leave and he'd hand off the pastorate to someone else, and then he would revisit or write letters to these churches he had planted. He would check up on them. You know, he wasn't just gone, but he would sometimes check up and even revisit them. So two of his letters in the New Testament, the pastoral epistles or pastoral letters, are written to Timothy himself. Now, Lucius could be a Latinized version of Luke. We often think, well, why didn't he just say Luke? Well, uh, because in the ancient world, there were three primary languages. There was Latin, Greek, and Hebrew, or Aramaic. So sometimes the same name is spoken of in a different way. We saw that last week where Priscilla is referred to as Prisca, right? It's the same person. So it's not positive that Paul is talking about Luke, but it's likely. And he's just referring, he's just saying in the Latinized, because of course Romans spoke Latin. And so he refers to someone named Lucius. Another is Jason, and this could be the same Jason from Acts 17 and 5, Paul's landlord in Thessalonica. He had someone who basically let him live with him, but he paid a small fee. So we think of landlord, why would he send greetings from his landlord? It's not like us today, you're renting a house, you have no real relationship with this person. In those days, Paul was sort of like living with somebody else, and um, that person's name was Jason. This is likely, not positive, but likely the same person. Sosipater could be the Berean church's delegate, delegate excuse me, to Jerusalem in Acts 18 and 7, whose name was abbreviated to Sopater. Uh, how's that for a boy's name? 
uh, because he too was in Corinth at this time. And again, this highlights what we talked about last week, that, that Paul is not an egomaniac. It's not the Paul the Apostle show. He cares about these other people. He incorporates them into his letters. He wants them to know other, the other believers. He wants to connect people to God and to one another. There is a vertical and a horizontal dimension to the gospel, and, and it's manifested in Paul's ministry such that we should sort of look at that as a model for us. And I said this last week, it's not enough for us to be connected to God, but we ought to be connected to one another. And if, you know, one part of that, of the coin is missing, then there's something wrong. We should be connected to one another, and we should be working hard, even if we're not naturally social people. So some of us are naturally extroverts. It's easy for us, maybe. And some of us, it's not so easy to do if you're an introvert. But we have to try because the gospel connects us to one another in love. Now, Paul makes this, uh, excuse me, Romans here, this last section, there is a statement here in verse 22 by Tertius. It's another awesome boy's name. Uh, it means third. How, how do you like that? Your mom named you third. Uh, <clears throat> I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Now, why would I pause here? Why, why would I make like, any observation about this statement? Well, it's important for a couple reasons. Number one, Paul had some kind of issue with his eyes. And in Galatians 4, he makes this statement. He says, although my illness was a trial to you, if possible, you would have gouged out your own eyes and given them to me. We don't know what the condition was, but it was likely that his eyes filled up with mucus and they were always red and puffy to the point where it was sometimes hard to look at Paul. This is, the scholars have sort of conjectured this because of the statements he makes. In fact, the thorn in Paul's flesh could have been his eye condition. And this is important because it means that sometimes Paul dictated his letters to other people. Now, liberal theologians cast aspersion on the authenticity of Paul's letters because they notice that sometimes Paul's letters don't, the language of Paul's letters don't seem to match up. The first observation I would make is if you look at my writings today at my age versus 20 years ago, you'd say that's not the same person, right? Because we all grow and we get better and we get more articulate. So that seems obvious. I don't know why they haven't thought of that, but that just seems kind of obvious. The other is that Paul had secretaries, and I don't mean like, you know, in a business office, your secretary, but I mean someone who often Paul dictated to, the thoughts were in his head, but it probably was not expedient with his eye condition to sit down all the time and write. So he had people around him who could write for him, and Tertius is an example of that. So Paul says, hey, go ahead and tell everybody who you are. It says, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. That may have been the only time that anyone ever heard of this guy, Tertius, but he was the secretary of the Apostle Paul. How's, how's that for another privilege, right? You know, I mean, that's your claim to fame. I mean, it's, yeah, I was with Paul for years, and I wrote, I mean, he dictated them, but I wrote the letters. So Paul allows Tertius to greet people. And... Um, 
It's, it's just really, it's really interesting for us as we think about the way Paul is ending the book of Romans. Now, I want to be mindful of our time, um, but Paul cared about people, he cared about doctrine, and he wanted to protect people, and he wanted to protect the church. Now, in verse 23, there are a few more names, but we've run out of time. Um, I don't have enough time to sort of cover it. But he ends with this blessing, and I think next week what I'm going to do is have one more sermon where I unpack his blessing. But I'll just read it to you, and we'll sort of close on this note. He says, after he finishes his greetings, he says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you, the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, on the screen you'll notice a few little dots because I've compressed the statement. And scholars have made a big deal about how Paul is often, you know, he'll make a statement and in the middle of a statement he'll sort of be He'll, he'll sort of have a side note to what he's saying. The benediction is really this. Now to him who is able to strengthen you, the only wise God, that's the one who can strengthen you, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ, amen. But in the body of the blessing, he says, to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel, which is the preaching of Jesus Christ, and according to the revelation of the mystery, which was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed the prophetic writings and has been made to known, known, made, made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. And then he picks up again to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. There is so much rich theology even in Paul's blessing as he closes out the letter. And I just want to encourage you this week Next week, I'm going to unpack this section. I want to encourage you this week to read the book of Romans. I'm going to do some summarizing next week about the doctrines in the book of Romans, but this is probably one of the most important books in the entire Bible. And I'm sure some of you have missed some of the sermons of the last 10 months. I understand that. But I want to encourage you this week to read the entire book of Romans, all 16 chapters so that next week when we visit and, and unpack Paul's final blessing, it all wraps up together. That's what I want to do. I want to just wrap it all up together. So that we have a picture of the glory of God contained here in these verses. And not only that, but that going forward, the book of Romans would be such a deep well of encouragement to each and every one of us and sort of a way to equip us as we share the gospel of God's righteousness acquired by faith alone. Let's pray. Father, thank you now for this, um, this accomplishment that we as a church have um, accomplished going through the book of Romans. We thank you that you have preserved letters written to the churches by the Apostle Paul. 
And we stand here 21 centuries later in the year 2020, looking back on the words of a man who was converted from hating the church to being its biggest evangelist. Father, help us now to grab a hold of the encouragement here and let the information that is in our heads sink down into our hearts and ultimately be made manifest in our hands, O God, in what we do and how we treat one another and how we live and even how we share the faith that we so cherish in our hearts. We pray that your spirit would continue to illuminate us this week. And Father, I do pray that that we would pick up the book and read this week, that we would read the book of Romans, that we would refresh ourselves in your truth. Your word is truth. Let us be transformed by it and leave this place differently than the way we came in. In Christ's name, amen.